Thank you all very much for your patience and waiting here. Uh, it seems as though we've uh, been witnessing a tsunami of losses of uh, parents and um, uh, various issues in the congregation. The prayer list is getting to be very long. Um, yeah, the um, yesterday, uh, Stacy Aldridge's mother was in the hospital. And Doris Mansell, if those of you that might not know the Mansells would recognize Don Mansell. He's the one who has Parkinson's, who has the, the walker who uh, shuffles. Um, Doris Mansell had had surgery on her hip, and then uh, she dislocated her hip uh, by, with a fall. And um, we've had some, uh, some losses uh, in our congregation. Um, uh, Angie Dykstra lost her, her grandfather. Uh, Sove lost her, my wife Sove lost her mother this last week. I say lost, I guess heaven's gain is our loss, but we should remember that as well. Um, uh, I know that uh, the Silverbergs have been suffering from the loss of John's brother, and now Linda says her father has gone into the hospital as well. Um, well, goodness sakes. Um, so many, so many things for us to all worry about, I guess, but at the same time, um, God in his infinite grace and mercy um, gives to these people who have gone before us a far greater reward, and we are the ones who are left here uh, having to, um, I guess you might say, slug it out with the world that, in which we live. That text that Jesus said, he who stands firm to the end will be saved, really does mean that this is a veil of tears. This is a world where um, we have our wonderful moments and we have our reasons to rejoice, um, but we also are here for a reason. Um, God could bring the world to an end in a flash. And just think how wonderful that would be. You don't have to worry about getting sick. You don't have to worry about your retirement. <laughs> you don't have to uh, worry about... Uh, making the mortgage payment. You don't have to worry about whether or not your kids are going to grow up and marry the wrong person. Um, you, um, you have no worries at all. And in heaven, what we're going to see in heaven is that pattern. See, we, we, don't, <clears throat> we don't see what that, that word, God is almighty. What does that word mean? Paul says, all things work for the good of those who love him and who have been all called according to his purpose. He's a little bit like our parents when we were growing up and we would say things like, are we there yet? And why? And why? And the answer was always, because. And second, sometimes the answer was, shut up. <laughs> um, um, what, we are, what, we, what we do with God is we, uh, we are... We're limited in our perspectives, and we do not see the hand that is leading everything. It is guiding everything. And God's purpose, the only way that, the only thing, the comfort that we have as God's children, Paul will, will say this, that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined, predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That means that before time and eternity, God knew you, God knew those saints by name. And he wouldn't be able to know them by name had he not had something to do with their coming into existence. And when you think of the complexities of how a person today comes into existence, a little baby is born today, and how complex it has been over the past thousands and thousands of years that mankind has been on this earth, how, what would have happened if that first wife back in the 1600s that died of the plague, if your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather had not married Mabel, Mabel, and had children with Mabel that you're descended from, you realize that, you know what, you wouldn't exist. And if God knew you before time and eternity, imagine the details that God is involved in. So, what we want to do is we want to reassure ourselves as we begin the study of God's word that all things work for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
And when you're a Joseph and you're in prison in Egypt and there's no way out and you say to yourself, how in the world could a loving God do this to somebody? You have to remember all things work for the good, not just of us, for the good also of others. And that's why Joseph is down in Egypt. He said to his brothers, what? What you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many lives. And so we don't see it. We don't see the hand of God. But in all things, they work for the good of those who love him and have been called. Well, uh, I don't have any more of Anna's prayers so what we're going to have to do is just say one for me. Okay, let's pray. Oh, Lord and Savior, we ask for your guidance, for your help, for your inspiration, that in this time and in this world in which we live, it is not just a world with trouble. It is a world that needs your people, and it needs the hands through which you have chosen to work. Help us to know the difference between when it is that we should in faith, turn all things over into your hands, and when it is that we should, in love, act as your hands in this world. Remind us why it is that the world has not come to an end. There are yet still people to be saved, to come to a knowledge of who you are, and to receive eternal life. Therefore, we pray, use us, that we may ourselves become partakers of your heavenly glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, um, the reason why I put this up here, uh, and maybe, I don't know, Jim, could we take the lights down just a little bit? Maybe it'll be a little bit brighter. Um, there we go. Whoa, those words are coming out. All right, um, I, I apologize that the new, the new NIV is um, they, they degenderized it, and it made for some odd constructions. But um, when I go to this site called, uh, uh, site called uh, BibleGateway.com, uh, they give you different versions, but I still stay with the NIV. So there will be a little bit of a difference between the old NIV and the new NIV. We don't, as a Lutheran church now, we no longer use the new NIV because it has pretty much ruined um, that whole, some of the translations are still very awkward, but uh, let's, uh, let's start off with some of these questions that we have here, and this is the first uh, Bible verse here. Why are we here? You know, what, what's, what's our job? Let's read it together. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And when you think atoning sacrifice, a lot of times people have, um, have made that into something. It's, it's kind of like, we're here to tell everybody that they have a million dollars in their bank account. Now you would say, if you tell people that they've got a million dollars in their bank account, it's all very nice and you hope that they believe it. But ultimately, if you put a million dollars in the bank account, it means that you're going to go there and get a million dollars. Now when we say... We're here because he is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. We're telling the world that Christ has died for the sins of all mankind. But what are you supposed to do with that sins of all mankind are forgiven? You go to the bank and you withdraw it. You receive it. Meaning, we are here in order that through this ministry of the word and the sacrament, we are going to actually bring the atoning sacrifice. Atoning meaning not just that God is atoned for, that, that, there's a, that God is appeased, but rather that we're also cleansing the consciences of people from their guilt, from their sins, that we are reconciling them to God, that we are purifying them so that they can also be holy. And that is a, also a process. So... What is it that we do on Sunday morning in order to be able to dispense, to become the bank that gives out the money? Well, 
atoning sacrifice, what are we going to do second service? Yeah, it's a, two things. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, in that water is also contained blood. That water that washes away sins washes away because of the power of the blood of Christ. So we're here to be that. That kind of tells you something, doesn't it? That we're not, we're not here. What are some of the things that people think the church should be? Personally, when I go over to Traders Point, I really like the playground myself. I, that's the reason why I would go to church there, um, the playground. Um, and I'm, you know, it's nice that they do it. I mean, that's it's a nice community thing, right? But why are we there? Do they have sacraments? Do they have the Lord's Supper? Do they have, do they have a baptism? Do they know what baptism is? These also these churches, which today are also churches that don't have sacraments, and yet you say, well, what? But but nobody thinks we're great and glorious. In the first service, I was talking about monuments. Right? Isn't it? I mean, it is nice to be able to drive by our church and say, what a beautiful church. The disciples said, wasn't that temple really fantastic? Look at those stones, man. That's just one heck of a construction. It's an impenetrable fortress. That was, back in those days, temples were not just places of worship. They were also places that had that stored the entire treasures of Israel. And because they were the treasury houses of Israel, they also had to be fortresses. And the temple in Jerusalem was the most magnificent, probably one of the seven wonders of the world, one of the most magnificent fortresses in the world. They, Lord, look at that. Doesn't that tell you that we as your people are going to be here for thousands of years? Jesus, I tell you what, not one stone standing upon the other is going to be left. They don't know quite exactly why the Romans did it. They suspected that there were tunnels and chambers underneath, kind of like in the pyramids, where there were treasures, and that therefore the Romans, when they conquered this temple, they unearthed all the stones, but they also say that because of the burning and the fire, they believe that the gold that was on the inside of the Holy of Holies melted, and it went down in between the cracks, and they went down to get every piece of gold that they could get their hands on. They unearthed, the Romans unearthed the temple down to the very last stones that are left today, which is called the Wailing Wall. There is nothing that is permanent. We are here in order that we might be the atoning sacrifice for sins. Our existence. All right. Number two. Why else are we here? 1 John 3, 23. Can you see it? And read it together. And this is his command. To believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. Boy. You talk about a, a purpose statement. Do you have them in business? Do you have, you, does, your, does your corporation... You guys, you guys are working for Royals Royce, right? Yeah. And do they have, a, do they have some sort of a purpose statement? Yeah, uh, they got lots of purpose statements. Okay. Depending upon your division, maybe, or something like this. Well, you know, they have goals or whatever they call those things, um, mission statements. We say, well, what's our, what's our goal? And, you know, sometimes churches, oh, to be a body of Christ where people are reaching out to one another and helping each other. This is our purpose statement. To believe and to love. To believe and to love. Very, very simple. So we have to proclaim him um, every day. All right? What else? Romans 3, 22 this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Now, in that statement, there is no difference. 
how would that statement influence the way that we would act or behave among ourselves here at church? How does that statement, what does it suggest to us? Have you ever noticed that the most important people in the congregation always sit in the back? <laughs> and the greatest sinners are always the ones who are up here in the front. Yeah, and the Bible is a little different. The, you know, the, the guy who beat his chest and said, God, be merciful. He was in the back of the synagogue. But um, do, do, do we as a church ever, uh, I guess you might say, show deference to, to some people and ignore other people? person that walks in not very well clothed, person that walks in that's poor, person that walks in that's rich. You know, somebody comes to your church and they're wealthy. Pastor immediately goes out and calls them. <laughs> somebody comes into church and they're not so wealthy. They're kind of, you know, disheveled, maybe even living in the shelter someplace. Do we run to take care of them? Paul says there is no difference. This is one place where every single person is equal. And there is not a single one of us that is more righteous than the other. Not a single one. That's hard to get into our brain because I know as well as you do that when that person of substantial wealth wants something to happen, we respond much more quickly than the person who has the widow's might and wants something to happen. So what are we as a church? What is our purpose? We are to be a place where everybody is the same. And the same means not just the same in sin, but he says, and our, there's the word, justified freely by his grace. Justified. Now, somebody, I always hate it when people try to come up with catchy little ways of being able to understand theological words. What I cannot understand is why it is that people can memorize medical terms that are this long and know exactly what they mean, but when it comes to Christian words like atonement, justification, they go, I don't know what that word means. Well, to be justified obviously is a courtroom judge thing that you do. To be justified is to be declared innocent. To be justified is to say, not only does the judge declare the person to be innocent, but the law no longer has any hold on that person. So if the jury comes back and says, we find the defendant to be not guilty, and you see the guy go, <gasps> you know, and then his wife kisses him and all that kind of stuff, and then they just walk out of the courtroom. To be justified before God means that God actually has declared us to be not guilty, but not guilty in the sense that we didn't do it, not guilty in the sense that he will not hold the law against us because Christ has fulfilled that law for us. So by looking to Christ, who has fulfilled the law for us, we have the promise from God that when we stand there in that last day before God, no matter how bad we have been, to cling to Christ, just like the thief on the cross, to cling, cling to Christ means that we will be declared innocent. And you hang on to that with all your might so that when that day of death comes, or whatever it might be, whether it's that day or, or the present day, that you can say, I stand before God completely innocent. Now, so what are we as a church? On the one hand, we are people who are equal to each other in our sin, equal to each other in our justification. Right? My wife is a teacher, and it's not, inf it's not an uncommon thing for her to find that there are students who um, uh, do the wrong things. Um, get into trouble. 
And you know, there's always a student, there's always one student that's more guilty than anybody else. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, maybe even when kids are growing up, that, you know, they get into a fight. And so what you do is, the only way to solve the problem, you can never, remember this, Anna, uh, you, can, you can use this on your parents later on. You can never, ever discern between who's really the most guilty. So the best thing in the whole world is to declare them all guilty. <laughs> and then to pardon them all. Because that's the only way that you can get rid of it. And so, uh, yeah, there will be a difference, a variety of badness to all of us. I mean, particularly Debbie Grady, not to mention any names. But, uh, see, I can say that because she's, she's this, she, she should, you're sitting in the middle, though. You should sit in the back. That's where all the saints are. Uh, <laughs> She is she's a, a good, righteous person, so I can pick on her. But uh, we are all equal here. So this is, this is supposed to be a haven, a haven for people. And it's not going to be a haven for people who are self-righteous. That we pray for. Okay, Ephesians 3, read it with me. His intent was that now through the church... The manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Okay, now, so you say, what, what, what is our, our reason for, for being here? The manifold wisdom of God should be made known. But who are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms? You think about that. I suppose uh, whenever we use the word rulers and authorities, the first thing that we think about is what Jesus said. We're gonna, you're gonna, he told his disciples that they were going to stand before kings and emperors. They did, didn't they? The Apostle Paul, Festus, Felix, Agrippa, King Agrippa, ends up going all the way to Rome, and he makes known what it is, this great mystery of the gospel. That, that's part of it. But I suspect when he says, in the heavenly realms, that we actually might be looking at what lies behind authorities. For every authority, the authority that they have, there is an angelic presence there. And it doesn't mean that it's always a good angelic presence. It can also mean an evil one, a Herod. It could be a, a Nero. It is our job, whether we see it or not, it's our job to go out into this world here and proclaim openly and publicly the victory that Christ has over sin, death, and the devil. And when we do so, we are basically, I guess you might say, exercising the world. How many of you saw The Exorcist? How many of you liked it? <laughs> oh, my God. oh, boy. Well, before baptism, you know, and Martin Luther... Um, the Lutheran Church kept something that the church, Roman Catholic Church had always had. It was called, at the time of baptism, it was called exorcism, where they literally declared that that child was no longer under the influence of the power of the devil. And we say it kind of like that in the service. But when a child is born, apart from that exorcism, that child is born with original sin and is therefore under the power of the devil. It's, the devil has the right to claim that child because that child is by nature, does not possess the holiness or the righteousness that God demands, which is necessary for eternal life. So when that child is brought into the church, we declare in the heavenly realm, Satan, you don't have any right, any power to be able to take this child for yourself. This child belongs to us. Now, I've, I've mentioned this a couple times before. 
that in the early Christian church, they oftentimes said that wherever the gospel went, wherever Christian baptism went, that all of this satanic kind of power that was used. We, if you ever want to kind of see this, we've talked about this, that you go down to Haiti and there's this, this animism, this, um, this like, I guess you might call it this voodoo cult kind of thing that goes on down there. But, it, but it's also, it's, it's, in the, it's in the world anyway. It's just a more sophisticated way that it's in the world. When we come as Christians in the name of Christ, it's much the same kind of thing as when Jesus exercises people. And that is to say, the satanic powers lose their power in the presence of Christ. So if we want to be able to do something good for our nation and our country, the best thing that we can do is proclaim before the world the victory that Christ has had over sin, death, and the devil. And also to live our lives with that kind of confidence. So we're here, in a sense, to be soldiers. We're we're here to fight a battle. And the church is the instrument and the means through which we do that according to the eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him we may approach God with freedom and confidence. What does that mean? That means that now we get to be the people who are telling others about what Christ has done for them. Now, what does that look like? I, I, I've always used this. I'm, I, I'm, I'm getting to be old enough. Don't cry. I'm getting to be old enough now, so I'm telling the same old stories which was bad when I was 50, but right now I'm old enough to not care. Um, and, I ho- and I'm kind of counting on you not to remember. Um, but uh, it's that story of the James Clavell novel uh, called, um, there was one called Shogun, and then there was called, one called King Rat. And King Rat was about uh, this Japanese concentration camp and the, the, how they formed a society inside of the concentration camp called King Rat because... They got to a, they were they, were, they made in a sense made money inside of the camp by kind of like Hogan's Heroes by selling stuff you know and they eventually got to the point where they deceived people because they were killing rats cooking them and selling the meat as chicken and they that's why they called them King Rat anyway when the Americans showed up they did not come out of the prison camp because they thought that it was a trap and the Japanese were going to kill them. All right? The world, that's the picture of the world. The world is afraid of God. The world is afraid that God is going to destroy them. The world is afraid to walk out of the world that it knows into a world of freedom that it does not know. And you know what? Freedom is a lot more frightening sometimes than slavery. You probably have has some knowledge of, of what slavery did in this country, didn't, don't you? I mean, that, how it is that in, the, in that uh, civil war that we had in our country, that they, they came to free these slaves, and, the, and, and after they were freed, the s- slaves are going, what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to make a living? How are we supposed to... Living underneath, even the Israelites did it, didn't they? Where they said, send us back to Egypt. At least we got to eat from the flesh pots of Egypt, but you bring us out here to the desert to die. And God is going, I give you freedom. And this is what it is that you do with it. They start worshiping golden calf. We're here so that the world might know that they can come to God and get out of that concentration camp and walk into God's eternal life with freedom and confidence. We, um, we, um, okay, let's, I'm sorry, we just keep going on here. All right. Philippians 7, 3, 7, and following. Read it together with me. But whatever were gains to me, I now considered loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, the to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. Okay, that's a mouthful. Um, number one, you say, hmm, I just got called to be a child of God. All right? And, um, boy, I tell you, this freedom is so great because if anybody takes away, like Job, if they take away my job, if they take away my income, if they take away my wife, if they take away my children, it's okay. Can we do that? Are you... Are we capable of being able to... Now, yeah, everybody, it's okay to feel grief. Jesus did. But are we able to be able to say, I have not lost? And that's one of the reasons why we're here. Is because we want to be able to say, this world cannot in any way take us away from our love for God and our love for Christ. And that's hard to do when you're in the midst of losing it, isn't it? So Paul says, not only that, but I'm going to consider something to be a loss for Christ that's even greater than that. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. That boy had been raised from infancy to know the Scriptures. He had been a person who had surpassed all of his other peers in learning and knowledge. He was the one who was at the very top. He was a student of the he had gone to the Harvard of Jerusalem, and he was the top student. He was Gamaliel's pupil. He was the guy who was so zealous for Judaism, he was ready to kill people who didn't want to believe. He was so ecta, great, wonderful, magnificent. He was the scholar of scholars. And he took all that up. And threw it into the garbage. Because he knew that everything that he had been doing up until that point was something that he was doing in order to make a righteousness for himself. Now you think about how many of you have, um, have a resume or some sort of a vitae? Have you made resumes? So I would assume that that means that you're looking for a job. <laughs> Maybe you did. Um, oh, you do. I mean, how would you lie? I mean, you just say, went to high school and kind of finished. You're not going to get a job, right? So you start thinking of all the things that you can list there. You know, I ran this, I did this, I was, you know. Because in the world, you've got to have that resume, and that resume is going to say, you're good at what you do. This is the reason why it is that people want you. Paul had a resume that was this in Judaism. And he says, basically, in order to be a Christian, I threw it all away and considered it to be garbage. I didn't even consider it to be something that was of any value. So sometimes we have to be here for that. And then he says, um, he says, I want to Know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection. My, um, I, my dad, uh, if, you've been a, if you've attended our Wednesday Bible classes, uh, you probably have heard this story too. But my, my father's favorite passage in the whole Bible was, what did his profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul. Now you, you see, well, that's kind of a morbid thing, you know. It is my favorite Bible passage, but this is a, this is a guy who 
first of all, when he was a young, relatively young man, his father died. His father was older, but uh, about five years after he had married my grandmother, um, his father had uh, came down with rheumatoid arthritis and was bedridden for the rest of his life. And my grandmother, they didn't have those little uh, lifts that they have nowadays for picking people up and you know changing their bedpans and that kind of stuff. For 14 years, my grandmother did all that with her arms extended, and so that she looked like this after he died. And then um, he got polio and was paralyzed from the chest down. Then his sister got polio, and she died from polio. Then uh, later on in life, he got Parkinson's. And at the end of his life, my sister told me yesterday that his immune system broke down, and he had sores all over his body that were so great that he had a sore, uh, he had a blister big enough on his foot that almost covered his entire foot. He went through enormous pain and suffering in his life. Now, that was my dad. Walked with crutches in my entire life. I saw what that meant. Um, all you have to do sometimes is sprain your ankle and walk around with some crutches and then ask yourself, could you do this for the rest of your life? That man put his entire life into Christ, uh, taught Bible class for the youth of our, of our congregation. Um, I, I always uh, pull Mark Harris's leg because his, uh, his cousin... Uh, in Montevideo, Minnesota, was the wildest kid in all of town. They were, back in those days, they called them hoods. Did you ever hear that, hoods? They were the guys who drove the jacked-up cars and smoked and uh, chased girls from Granite Falls, um, not from your own town because uh, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. You have to go to another town. And that kid went to my dad's Bible class uh, in the in-between services, and that was the only thing he went to, but he went to my dad's Bible class. Well, I'm not, I, you, know, you know these stories about my dad, I, um, snowstorms and all that kind of stuff. But what, that passage, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? That passage says, you know what? We could lose everything, and we won't lose a single thing. This is this passage of Paul. He says, I want to know not only Christ and the power of his resurrection. That's not just a future power. That's actually the power of his resurrection now. But participation in his suffering. What does that mean? How does one participate in the sufferings of Christ? Anybody have any stigmata on their hands? What does it mean to participate in the sufferings of Christ? What do you think? Think about where Christ suffered. When he walked up to the tomb of Lazarus, it says, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. When you weep with, at the same time, the joy of the coming resurrection, you are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Those are not just yours. They're his. Sufferings of Christ. Did Christ suffer when Pharisees were abusing the people with their doctrine of works righteousness? When you see somebody who says, I can't be what God wants me to be, and you empathize, you feel that, that, that burden that that person is carrying and you want them to be able to feel the forgiveness and the mercy of Christ, you participate in the sufferings of Christ. Anytime, Jesus said, all men are going to do what? They're going to hate you. So, Anna, when all those girls are jealous at school because you're cute and they're not, that's not the sufferings of Christ. <laughs> Those would be sufferings, but not the sufferings of Christ. But when, when that gospel, that, uh, and we, I mentioned it in the newsletter, in the, uh, in the letter that I sent out this last week, 
I, I get um, where I do, I work out in the gym, and there's a lady that's there, and I, I like her, and I think we're kind of friends, but if I ever make any kind of a statement that might be construed to be a conservative moral statement, she just lets me have it. <laughs> and and I, I, ordinarily, you just ignore people like that, right, Shirley? But I learn a lot because I see behind that anger, I think we should, because behind that anger, there's oftentimes something that that person needs that they cannot find. They're lost souls. And when you step into the world, take the anger of the world and understand what, that there's something behind that anger, and you, that's what Christ was doing. He looked down from the cross and he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that's a part of the participation in the sufferings of Christ. Paul says in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces... You're not going to go to heaven unless you know this answer. Hope. And hope doesn't disappoint because God has poured out his spirit into our hearts, right? So what, 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 what's going to happen? Does that, does that person who's suffering and going through this, you know, what, what was it? It's like this, um, this um, uh, guy who comes into the temple, Nic not Nicodemus, but um, why, did, why did my mind just go blank? Um, it's, uh, Lord, let your servant, it's, um, go in peace. Um, Simeon. I can't figure out why he didn't answer that quicker. I was just pretending that I didn't know. <laughs> Simeon was anxiously looking for the consolation of Israel. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would see the Christ before he died. Can you imagine somebody who wants so badly for God's promises to be fulfilled that they pray, 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 God, let me see, let me see, let me see. And God says, okay, you get it. And he walks into the temple, and there's the woman, and it's been revealed. He held that baby who was going to be the Savior of the world, and he says, we sing it. Lord, now let thy servant, let us thou thy servant depart in peace, for my eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, alike to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Wow. But we're here to bear that suffering, to bear that cross, and to look forward anxiously to that day when you and I are going, Lord, aren't you going to come? Lord, aren't you going to come? Aren't you going to come? Bring it to an end. Please, please, please. That's the sufferings of Christ. So we're here to do that. I think... Okay, Colossians 1, 9 to 14. Together, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Can you imagine the mind that could write that? How do you unpack all of that? So, thank you, by the way, for all of you who have said, 
we are praying for you. That, so this last week, as you will hear, my wife's mother died. And, you know, we've had a lot of saints that have, have died, but it is always wonderful to hear when people will say, you are in our prayers. And you know what I do? I really hope that all of us are sincere about that because there are a lot of people that say it. I, we continually ask God to fill you with knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Knowledge of his will. Now, you know, that, that's, that's a, this is a tough one which oftentimes people abuse too. And either they determine what God's will is and basically tell God what to do, or sometimes it's just, well, God's will is going to be done no matter what, so why is it that we even pray or that we even try to be able to understand? Now there are, I guess, uh, we have to always say, kind of like with Joseph in Egypt, that God's will is sometimes up there above us. We don't understand why it is that Uncle Billy had a heart attack. We don't understand why it is that our mother went through this or why it is that our children were taken from us or whatever. We don't always understand. Now, it is true that sometimes we can see beneath ourselves and we can say, hey, you know what? The bad things that happened happened, this bad thing happened because I participated in bad things. You know, if I, if I lip off to the highway patrolman and tell him to go home to his wife and quit stopping people who are speeding, and I get a speeding ticket, I kind of know what God's will is, or I should. But insofar as my car suddenly has a breakdown and I get a flat tire while I'm traveling 80 miles an hour down the interstate in Chicago, and my car has an accident and I end up in the hospital, I don't know why. They asked Jesus, that came up. They were, uh, there was a man who was born blind. They said, Pharisees said, and disciples too, who sinned, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? They're always looking at causality. And Jesus said, neither one. This is for the glory of God. There's something here where God has a purpose and a reason, and we don't see it. It's up here. But we pray to understand his will. And sometimes his will is something like what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus had been sick. Jesus stayed away for three days so that when they got there, Lazarus' body was rotting. And they said, Lord, if you had come, well, they knew he could heal. Lazarus could, yeah, he's sick, but Jesus, you can heal him. You do that to everybody. But his body is rotting. And what is Jesus, what's the whole point in this? You know, if it hadn't been for Jesus walking up to the tomb of Lazarus and raising him out of the dead, do you think that maybe we might still question whether or not he had the power to be able to raise our stinking flesh out of the grave? Well, you say, well, Jesus can be raised from the dead, but what about other people? When he walks up to the beer where there are young boys coming out of Cana and he says, rise, everybody could say, well, you know, he was probably just sick and he's probably in a state of a coma and he, Jesus raised But when Lazarus has a body and he stays away deliberately so that his body is rotting, and he walks up to that tomb, something greater is happening and we would say as Christians, Lord, let me know and understand and see in what's happening. I want to see your will. And sometimes he shows it to us, and sometimes he doesn't. And we don't know why. Sometimes it's backwards. We think that we have the answer, but God has a different answer. So we want to know his will, and we're here to do that. We have to be strengthened as we grow in our knowledge so that you may have great endurance and patience. Endurance. How many of you have participated in some kind of high school or college athletics? And 
and you could just walk onto the football field without practicing, right? No. Um, we, when I went to Concordia College in St. Paul, um, I was amazed at how many guys showed up on the first day for practice. We, I, I, I want to just let you know that I didn't go to college to study. I went to play football and, um, and drink beer. Um, we were, uh, we had a, uh, this pastor, um, we're, we're going to come to an end here, pastor um, over in uh, Germany, we, we sent him one of our albs, and he says, well, should I be wearing that with a cincture? I said, no, we're, we're not going to do it, because um, when you have that cincture, you, you see this big bulge out here in front of all these pastors. And, um, and he wrote back, and he said, the Bavarians call that a beer muscle. <laughs> so I don't know how we got the beer muscles from this, but I, I, I thought I'd uh, share that with you today. Okay, and we conclude with, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son, whom we love, in whom we have redemption. So we're buying people back, the forgiveness of sins. That's the reason why we're here. All right, well, we will um, continue on uh, with this. Um, on June the 9th, uh, Sove and I will begin the process of uh, going to Germany. We're going to uh, sponsor a couple of tours. Uh, one of those is going to be that uh, Reformation 500 Choir Tour. And uh, these are going to be um, uh, 23 pastors, 22 pastors, and one seminarian, our own vicar, who are going to be singing in Germany, uh, first in uh, Oberursel, which is where we have a seminary there, uh, uh, Lutheran Seminary, then in a town called Einbeck, then in a place called Halle, and then in Wittenberg, and then in Prague. And so these pastors are going to go kind of as representatives, if you will, of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and they're going to bring wonderful, wonderful news of the gospel. Okie dokie, Smokey. Well, we will uh, conclude with a blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord look upon you with his favor and give you peace. Amen.